ultimately for me, when I see a bunch of people making noise in one specific sector, I tend to step back and say, what are people missing here? And what people were missing was that the trailer is actually doing the work. And we're putting so much energy and effort and mass and materials and complexity in the tractor. And the trailer is still staying that kind of, forgive me for saying this kind of dead weight, dumb trailer that it has been for 50, 60 years. And so what happens if we add some intelligence? Well, in fact, what happens if we add batteries and propulsion to the trailer? Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, formerly of Argo AI, whom I never represented on this show, the founder of the Human Driving Association, and now a management consultant. But I'm not allowed to shill for my company, so I won't even name it. And today, we have a guest. Now, you know, I sometimes refer to people as the most interesting person in Sector X, but this time it's actually true. When I walked into the parking lot of this man's company, I knew that at least one and as many as six people who work here must be very, very interesting outside of work. His name is Ali Javadan. He's the founder and CEO of Range Energy, and he has a lot to talk about beyond Range Energy, which is one of the most surprisingly cool startups. You can tell that I like this man. Ali, welcome to the Atonicast. Thank you so, so much. And I'm really honored to be here with you three. Uh, longtime listener and fan and uh, yelling at my radio constantly. And now maybe I get to yell directly. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, we like yelling. And I, I, we don't hear honored very much <laughs> when it comes to references to us. Uh, Alex, can you just walk us through the <laughs> why? meeting? Why, why I, I wanted him on the show so badly? Well, All right, well so, I mean, set it, set it, let's, let's set it up. I mean, give me, here's give me the a setup. sense of... Okay. Uh, so as, as our listeners may be aware, a lot of companies pitch each of us individually and sometimes as a group, and it's, it's tough to filter. But several people said that Ali was a very interesting man and that he had an association with Radwood, the vintage car show. So with that in mind, I did some sniffing around. I'm like, yes, that is true. And, uh, and so went to visit Range Energy. And in the parking lot, I see... A resto mod racing BMW. I'm like, okay, someone has good taste. And what appears to be a a, a, a mint condition Porsche 993 with some work being done to it. I'm like, well, this is very interesting. And I'm like, with with I I know I'm like my heart is beating faster just talking about these cars. Go into the lobby and see all kinds of racing memorabilia, and out comes Ali Javadan. Ali, would you like to tell us more about which car was yours and how you came to own it? <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the car that I'm most well-known for is my 2002. Um, this car I've owned since about 97, so several, several years. Um, I drove it as a college, cheap, fun college commuter car, and then about uh, eight or 10 years ago uh, with a little bit of extra time and money that I had, I ripped it apart. And now, um, it's, uh, it's a car that's been at, you know, multiple events during Pebble Beach car week. It's been in the BMW CCA museum, uh, and then uh, the official BMW 2002 book, uh, written by the, uh, the folks over at BMW. And so it's a 1971 BMW 2002, but kind of re-engineered, um, some of the guys, uh, some of the, the friends of mine call it a, a singerized 2002, but it's got a 
2.3 liter Evolution uh, S14 motor in it, putting about 280 horsepower out of the crank. Um, and it weighs about 2,100 pounds. Completely re-engineered the suspension. My background is vehicle dynamics and suspension engineering fundamentally. So, um, and, I, and I worked at Dynan running the motorsport program there and at ground control developing all the suspension bits and pieces that I'm sure Alex, you've run on cars before. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I kind of went full hog on this 2002 and, and the result is what I would consider to be the most sizzly car in my little, uh, in my little collection. And you've done this work yourself. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I did most of the work myself. There was, you know, I had a friend help spray the car and another friend help with the wiring, but yeah, all the, all the design engineering execution build was all done here in my, uh, with these hands. As a rule, I generally am much more favorable to people in mobility startups or transportation startups who actually have who have vintage cars because it means they actually know something. Especially if they worked only if they worked in them themselves because it That's means right. they know something about the history of transportation and they're probably more likely to do something smart in the next thing. Who owned that 911 in the parking lot? So that was a uh, 86 Carrera that you saw with the T-Tray spoiler. So sorry, there was a 993. There was also my 991 Targa, the mint green paint to sample manual Targa that I had also. Um, but uh, there was, there's always really crazy cars here. Right now we have my Mark 1 Escort rally car up on the lift and we have... Uh, I was... My, I was- my- just checking out the escort, the rally uh, uh, escort on your on your Instagram account, and it's it's beautiful. <laughs> and what yeah, is what is your cool car. association with Radwood? For anyone who doesn't uh, know, Radwood is the car show of eighties cars, and any association with Radwood is is positive. Eighties and nineties. We have that episode with um, Brad uh, Brad Brownell. Brad, thank you. Brad, um, yeah, Brad Brownell. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm really close friends with Lane and Art and Warren and Brad that started Radwood. And, and I've been a kind of a fan and supporter of the Driving While Awesome podcast and kind of the, the extensions of that, um, of that ecosystem for a while. And, and we've become very close friends. And now Lane, one of the founders of Radwood, works here uh, leading our design and, and media efforts. Of course he does. All right, so walk us through your his, the your automotive history. Wait, 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 it's wait, really wait. great. First of all, first what? of all, well, I mean, you didn't even mention the fact that I also own an old Porsche, so I'm a little bit offended by that. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel insufficient because I don't wrench on the car by myself because um, doing things like replacing the air conditioning, I'm not properly equipped to do. <laughs> it's I mean, you have a 928, which is like a notoriously oh yeah. I, yeah. I probably wouldn't work on my own 928 either. <laughs> <laughs> but we could get a we could have a little Porsche get together. Although Ed will have to go out and and get one. We have. I mean, I, mean, I, I have I have a BMW. I'm, you yeah. do. You do. BMWs you do. are more welcome in my world than Porsches are. Oh yeah. no. Okay. Well. All right. Go ahead, Alex. Ask your questions now. All right. So all right. So let's go back in time to the part where Ed's going to really have a lot of questions to your, your history, your, your history in automotive. Cause it is one of the most fascinating and it lends itself in a big way to why, what range energy is doing is so interesting. Cool. So I'll, I'll do like a high level flyover and then you guys pause me or, or have me go back. Oh, Ed's uh, going to pause you. <laughs> uh, so um, like I said, I studied vehicle dynamics and, and suspension uh, um, design in college 
as soon as I left college, I started working directly in motorsport for companies like Ground Control and Dynan, building out cars like the Beamer World and Turner uh, team cars that you may have seen on Speed Vision. Uh, so I did that for a few years. And, um, and in about 2007, 2008 timeframe, I decided to exit racing and kind of get a regular sit down job. Um, one of the first jobs I got was, uh, in 2008, I joined early 2008, I joined a small startup trying to make an electric Lotus. Um, and that turned out to be Tesla motors. When I joined, there weren't very many car people there. Nobody really understood vehicle dynamics. They were really leaning on Lotus for all of the platform development and, uh, and the, the kind of vehicle attribute side of things. And I was kind of the first person to come in and take on, the vehicle itself, uh, making it feel like a car and making it feel like something that people would want to drive and get excited to drive. So in 2008, I joined uh, full time and, and I, jo I started the prototyping team at Tesla. Um, and about a month after I joined, Elon took over the company and there's a whole bunch of fun stuff which we, we can talk about that happened after that. But uh, survived, survived multiple rounds of layoffs uh, and ended up uh, out of my lab um, at Tesla, uh, introducing the Model S, Model X, RAV4 EV, smart car, uh, Daimler A-Class, Daimler B-Class. Uh, all of these cars were projects that we did for other companies or for ourselves. And then, uh, of course, um, the beginnings of Model 3. In 2012, I left Tesla and I went to Google. Hung out at Google for a few years, worked on um, a bunch of different projects, anything from working on the Firefly to uh, to working on advanced sensing and, and kind of future um, uh, mobile devices uh, and, and architecture of the Android platform. And then in 2015, I got a call from some friends at Stanford saying, hey, I know you like robots and I know you like cars. We're building a robotaxi. Come help us. And this was Zooks. And so I joined Zoots very, very early on um, in 2015 and, again, built out the prototyping team there. All the Highlanders, all of the Priuses that you saw for about five minutes, uh, and, and, of course, the robo-taxis um, were built uh, out of my lab. And, and we did, um, you know, all of the, the baseline development work for those vehicles. Um, one thing that's been kind of in the back of my mind, and this was an early conversation at Tesla, was we would sit down and have these conversations about what else has to be real for electric vehicles to be on the road. Um, uh, an example of one of the conversations that came out of, of those meetings was uh, the supercharger network. Another thing that we even talked about was towing. We knew that electric vehicles would not fare well while they're towing large, heavy loads. Um, there's a whole bunch of kind of technical reasons why, and I, and I don't want to kind of uh, bore you guys with those details, but essentially it was on our radar and we decided, you know, somebody's going to focus on this. We're going to focus on things like charging networks and, um, and, and service and battery technology and stuff like that. Fast forward to a few years ago, this idea of an electrified trailer came back up when I saw all of this kind of intense work and effort being put on electrifying or building our alternative propulsion uh, methods for the tractor. Ultimately, for me, when I see a bunch of people making noise in one specific sector, I tend to step back and say, what are people missing here? And what people were missing was that the trailer is actually doing the work. And we're putting so much energy and effort and mass and materials and complexity in the tractor, and the trailer is still staying that kind of forgive me for saying this kind of deadweight, dumb trailer that it has been for 50, 60 years. 
And so what happens if we add some intelligence? Well, in fact, what happens if we add batteries and propulsion to the trailer? And so the last few years, I've been really kind of chasing that thread down. And, and over the last year, we started this venture and um, we've grew, grown the team. We're almost to 30 people now. And we built three functional prototypes. One was a small, quick proof of concept bumper pull. The next one was a uh, kingpin, kind of a gooseneck style trailer to kind of get us to think about class eight trucking. And then finally, last week, we put on the ground our class eight trailer. And the cool thing about adding propulsion, intelligent propulsion and uh, battery pack to the trailer is that it unlocks so many other new opportunities in the trucking space. So the very basic benefit that we have is that you hook up to one of our trailers and your diesel tractor will get 40 to 50 percent better fuel economy right off the bat because the trailer is now intelligently doing its own work. And, and there are so many other opportunities here, you know, powering uh, the reefer units that sit on these trailers and, and just really kind of help transition this industry to decarbonization and not try to force it into decarbonization. And the nice thing is that because it's a trailer, we have limited FMVSS and NHTSA requirements. So we can actually get these things to market as quickly as we can build them. And so now we're, we're, uh, we're working with our customers and our, our supply chain to figure out how we can deliver these tractors, uh, sorry, these trailers as quickly as possible to the market. And, and our goal is to have our first customer units in hand uh, early 2025. Um, and, and this will be small volume and then quickly grow up to there. I, I a quick. I know that Ed really wants to talk about like your your past, <laughs> but I do have a technical question about your future or the present. Um, specifically, how is um, you, you talked about how this is now like a smart trailer? Um, how easy is it for it to hook up to the the, the tractor part? Right? Um, is this? Um, I assume that there's some sort of software that communicates to that vehicle or how does that work so that they complement each other? Because you are, you have an electric motor and a uh, battery in the trailer, correct? Yes, absolutely. So that's a really, really good question. And this is kind of the key to our intellectual property and, and the way that we make all of this work ubiquitously across all of the different tractors, whether you have a 1975 Peterbilt or a 2024 E-Cascadia, it's going to work. And the way we do this is, you know, we initially thought about, okay, let's sniff the CAN bus, let's make a, you know, some kind of a, um, a data stream uh, uh, available to the trailer, but, uh, but things like functional safety, torque security, all of that stuff falls apart. And then it's a different algorithm for Peterbilt than it would be for Freightliner than it would be for Daimler. And so what we've done is we've kind of abstracted out of that whole mess. And what we're doing is we are in real time measuring the forces that are on the mechanical connection between the tractor and the trailer. The kingpin is this mechanical connection, kind of like a trailer ball on a, on a bumper pull trailer. And what we're doing is we're measuring the forces in real time at that kingpin. We send that information back to our vehicle controller and we say that you are in drive mode. This is your environment. And now there's tension on this kingpin. Hold, do everything you can to hold that tension at some nominal load, whether it's zero or 100 newtons or 1,000 newtons. We will hold it based on the drive cycle at that load. And essentially, we've been able to now close the loop completely and deliver a very high level of functional safety and make it so that nobody from outside of that trailer can send a torque command to the trailer. We only send data to the trailer. 
and the trailer makes its own decisions. And it has a second set of sensors on the vehicle controller side that's building the confidence loop so that we can deliver a very high level of functional safety on this system. And as a result, we can hook up to literally anything. So Alex, that K truck that you saw in our lobby, we one of the demos that we're looking at doing is actually having one of the giant trailers being towed by this 300cc K truck. Can I talk about what I saw in your garage or is that yeah, you can, still confidential? Uh, let's let's keep some of the brand names aside, but, okay. but definitely you can you can talk about whatever you saw. So uh, you had a trailer in the lab that uh, I guess right by the kingpin had a fixed joystick that looked like it was out of a... Uh, it was a Hearst shifter. Okay. and <laughs> But it was fixed, if I'm yep. correct. Yeah, yeah. And could you walk... So Because my first reaction when I saw the trailers was, well, can these things move around on their own? And how, what is the method of moving them? And my, my mind immediately goes to, it's a phone app. It, everybody's got a phone app. No. But walk us through your thinking there. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's... I've spent a decent amount of time thinking about human interactions. I got kind of trained really, really well at Google looking at mobile devices and, and the kind of uh, the, the crazy stuff that, that Elon kind of um, uh, had us doing really f- focused on delivering a customer experience, not a product. It was really about what's that customer experience at the end of the day. And so for us, if we think about controlling these trailers with an app or with uh, a joystick, there's latency there, it doesn't feel intuitive, and something may not pair, there may be interference, all of that stuff. So what we've done, that joystick that you saw is, is really just a fixed mechanical handle that's attached to the side of the kingpin. And we're not moving anything. It's really literally just measuring how hard you're pushing and pulling, and the system is reacting in kind. And as a result, the system feels intuitive you know, to the next level. It feels really, really transparent. And all of a sudden you feel like you have superpowers. You're not moving a joystick and waiting that, you know, 800 milliseconds of latency for the the stack to start to react to you. And as a result, the, the thing feels, you felt it. It feels like it's on an air hockey table. This giant 7,000 pound trailer feels like it's on an air hockey table. So, I mean, you know, coming from your background in, in suspension, vehicle dynamics and things like that, um, you know, w- what are the, I mean, because right, because is, Typically, and, and I'm I've been learning a lot about trucks, which I want to I want to ask you get into a little bit more. Trucks are becoming kind of cool right now, and I kind of want to get into why why that is. But but while we're while we're talking about the technology itself, you know, t- uh, semi trucks are not going around with drive power going to their to their trailers right now currently. Um, and obviously, you know, any any you know part of the the customer experience that you're talking about is that these systems especially now with the the driver you know challenges they have to be easy to use right and and i'm just curious how simple does the intelligence you talked about 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 sort of you know measuring forces off the kingpin and that makes perfect sense do you have to be measuring much more uh, other kinds of forces uh, lateral g's things like that and then and then incorporate that into sort of how the, the trailer is putting power down to the ground, sort of, I don't know, simulating a differential or like, like what are some of the, the, the things that you have to do there? Or, or is that all like much more straightforward than I, than I'm thinking about because it's a trailer. It's a, it sounds a lot scarier than it is. Uh, there are a couple of rules here. So number one, 
we are we are looking at all of the forces and the loads in every direction, not just intention. And so we can actually we can actually classify just as we did build classification algorithms for autonomy. We build classification algorithms for this drive system, and so we can classify when the trail when the tractor is attempting to make a turn, when it's attempting to brake, when it's attempting to accelerate. And most importantly for us, when it's got an ABS event or a threshold breaking event, and you can, and so, and I'm sorry, and, and you can do that all without tapping actually into into OBD. You're 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 doing inference. Uh, the only direct measurement we take is to trigger an ABS event. So there is uh, a common um, kind of line that's in the trailer, and most of the new trailers have ABS anyways. And what we're doing is we're monitoring basically the ABX actuation. As soon as ABS is actuated, we know there's something going on, going awry, and we basically remove torque from the system and we let the foundation braking system work as it did before. That's today. Now, if we think about in the future, five years from now, when electric brake calipers and disc brakes and all of these things make their way to the trailer, which they are now, you can option your Great Dane with electric brakes uh, if you want. When we get to that stage, then we will have a much more intimate handshake with the the system on the trailer, and we can actually now pro- provide propulsion to do things like sway control or low friction surface driving. Uh, you know, ice road trucking is a perfect example of that. And so initially, we're starting off this kind of baby steps to to gain confidence in the industry make people know that we work, that it's a good product, and then we'll start to add features as the the maturity of the platform uh, starts to grow through the industry. We're not here to force anything into existence. We wanna just kind of make it happen together with the operators because ultimately, it's the operators that that are going to make or break this thing out in the field. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And and in terms of like, um, just how much? I mean, because in a way, I mean, this is a, a you know partially autonomous system that That's you're right. essentially hooking up to a, a human. A, yeah, which which is it it's a fully autonomous system as far as from the safety aspects, mm-hmm. the validation aspects, all of that stuff. We're treating it as if it is an autonomous robot driving. So, so that implies you're having to put like quite a few miles in, into validation. Maybe, maybe That's not right. at this stage, but but you're you're getting there. And and I imagine Absolutely. a pretty broad range of scenarios because, as you sort of imply, these trucks. I mean, spend a lot of time on the on on the freeways, but they do come into towns. You get some sharp turns. You get low speed. You yep. get high speed. You get all. You really do see a wide range of things. And I have to imagine to to really make sure that that's that autonomous system is not going to do something weird that then throws the driver off. You have to really have a, a high confidence in that, right? Yeah, we're so uh, at at the very, you know, at at its very foundation, we're not making any claims of autonomy, but we will do all of the baseline validation that it takes. So let's say, for example, company ABC wants to make our trailers autonomous. They want to lay their sensor stack on top of it. It's fine. We will build all of the base functionality, the functional safety, the torque security, so that these folks can build autonomy on top of our trailers. But ultimately, Ed, you're very right that we have a very exhaustive uh, fault trees and, and uh, a set of uh, testing that we have to do before we, we unleash this thing on public roads. And we're doing that now. And the goal is to get uh, you know hundreds of thousands of miles of confidence on the road before we deliver this product. But also, to balance that out, we're not making giant claims. Like, we're not going to be autonomous and we're not going to, we're not kind of, I don't, 
I, I call it painting a false utopian future kind of a thing. Like, I don't want to like make this thing that like, if you do everything I say in five years, you're going to grow a unicorn horn and like, like forget about all of that. Like been, how been there, work? done that. Yeah. yeah. Like, how does this work today? Yeah. And how can I make it work a little bit better tomorrow and a little bit better the next day? Very, it's, it's a very pragmatic approach, especially because of this industry. These guys don't care what color or what, you know, what sound system your trailer has. They just want to know it works and that they don't have to pay too much for it. And that's it. Are you talking to, you You know, looking into the future and how, um, you know, a self-driving system or sensor system can, can be, you know, basically placed on this. Are you then talking to um, autonomous vehicle technology companies that are working on trucking? So we're, um, we're very friendly with all of the big players that are out there. Um, I've worked with several of, of them, uh, in the past. Um, but we are very purposefully focusing on decarbonization and not autonomy. Okay. We believe that autonomy can be a form of decarbonization, but we're building this as a very specifically a platform, not a product. And this platform today looks like a class eight dry van trailer or a reefer trailer. And very soon it's going to be a container chassis. But a couple of years from now, this could also and will trickle its way down to things like boat trailers and race car trailers. So the, it's the same platform and same technology. And we're being very, very careful for things like scope creep and, and adding complexity to our customers. And that's why we haven't approached, you know, the the, um, the auroras of the world to say, OK, now make the trailer autonomous, too. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that'll happen. Somebody will have the idea to do it. But right now, we want to make sure that the baseline platform that we're developing is very safe, very efficient, and we can ship it at large quantities. I get a lot of pitches about new platforms. So expand on what you mean by that. So it sounds like it could be a lot of future products. This underlying platform it com- is comprised of what exactly? And are you working with like the OEM manufacturers on the trailer side? Or is, or is there... Just give me yeah. a little bit more detail. So when I say platform, we're talking about uh, a large size battery pack, uh, propulsion of some kind in the class eight case, it's a a large e-axle made by companies like Dana or Allison or or other folks like that. Uh, And then closing that, that controls loop with a sensor in the mechanical interface. And we have that working and Alex has seen it on a small bumper pull trailer on a medium sized gooseneck trailer. And now we have it working on a 53 foot trailer. Okay. And so we basically, uh, we have this really cool tool that we're building right now that allows you as a user or as a potential customer to put in your drive cycle, your usage habits, how much charging do you have? And we can actually run it through our physics, energy and financial models and give you a map of what product spec you would need. So maybe you need 250 kilowatt hours for the drive routes that you're doing. Maybe you need 150 kilowatt hours. We, we won't know until we do this kind of two-way dialogue with our customers. And we've been doing that now. We have several customers signed up for pilots. Um, but that's what I mean by a platform. We're not focused on a singular set of hardware with a singular set of supply chain and, and a very narrow piece of thinking. We're We've done this several times before. The the stat that my team likes to use is that this team has done eight commercial large-scale battery packs over four different vehicle OEMs. And there are not many teams in the world that can say that they've done that. Um, and we've been working on electrification for a very long time now. So we have the confidence to be able to say, okay, you know what? 
so-and-so needs 200 kilowatt hours and, and this other person needs 100 kilowatt hours for their operation. And we can easily uh, go between. And that's what we mean by platform. Right. And it sounds like you can right size it to whatever application. That's, that's the end yeah. goal is to make sure that we right size it because it's, you know, one of the, the challenges that we have and, and the kind of difference in thinking that, that I have from the other uh, electric tractor manufacturers that are out there is that we want to exactly what you said, Kirsten, was perfect. We want to right size for your operation. Our first trailer that we're bringing to our customers is only 200 kilowatt hours, less than what's in a H2, uh, the, the Hummer. And the reason we're doing that is because we're paying attention to their drive cycles. We're also paying attention to how they were going to be able to charge these things and what the dwell time at the loading dock. So one of the cool things that the trailer unlocks is now you don't have to build extra space on your lot to, to charge. You don't have to build this ex exotic infrastructure for, for charging. You actually leverage the power that's at the loading dock, add a charge adapter, and you can charge the trailers while the trailer is being loaded and unloaded at the same time. And so we size that battery pack pragmatically exactly for reasons like that, that we want to slot into these operations and not disrupt them. So, so who are your, who's the initial customer for this? Um, and, and specifically sort of, you know, maybe where are they? Is it California? Is this related to the, to the, Z, the car uh, rules that are coming for, for trucking? Yeah. Um, but then also, you know, sort of what are the kinds of routes? I mean, again, you, you're talking about a platform that someday will scale to lots of things. And, and one of the interesting differences between trucking and, and, and cars, a car kind of has to be able to do everything that someone, all the driving that someone's going to want to do. Whereas with trucking, you can develop more sort of specialized solutions. So I'm really curious to, to understand like who, where's, what's the, the, the sharp end of the adoption uh, piece of this? And, and what are the, what needs are they filling? Like what's the most important solution that you're delivering to those, those early customers? Uh, you hit it right on the head. So in California, there is a tremendous amount of pressure to decarbonize these trucking fleets, especially in Southern California. So today we are working with uh, folks like food and beverage distributors in Southern California, big ones that you would know, uh, you know, uh, box store distributors, all the big names that you could imagine are are uh, are signed up for for pilots and, and potential sales. Um, and the the what we're looking at is essentially to address this kind of big decarbonization push and be kind of like a relief valve for all of these fines and and uh, and the pressure that's being put on this industry. And as we do that, as we help the industry kind of decarbonize their existing fleet, because the big challenge is that there's like all this pressure being put on these large fleets that operate anywhere between 2000 and one of our customers operates 117,000 trailers across the United States. The, and they're saying, okay, you have to decarbonize. And by the way, the only thing you can do to decarbonize is buy these expect, expensive tractors that are not 190000 like a Freightliner Cascadia. They're $500,000. And so, and, and by the way, you can't get your 20 that you ordered for three more years. And so what we can do is we can actually start delivering much quicker. We can actually uh, get larger volumes of these trailers into these fleets. And not only do we decarbonize their existing tractors that they all just bought because of new regulations, we can actually help them transition. So one of the cool things is one of our customers has a very large site in Central California, and they just invested a ton of money in Tesla semis and e-Cascadias and other alternative tractors. Well, the problem is that there are, you've seen pictures. They're all broken down. They all run out of range. And what we end up doing is we take these tractors that had 170 or 180 mile usable range, and we're actually doubling that. We can get you 300 or 320 miles on your new electric tractors. 
And so it really helps transition this industry into whatever that future is, whether it's biofuels or hydrogen or whatever you choose, we actually expand the utility of what they have today. And this is one of the biggest benefits from both the regulatory side and the, the consumer side that, that we see. And, and Kirsten, to answer your question, we're working on the commercialization. We will, uh, you know, our first couple of trailers are built on Great Dane platforms, um, but we, we want to make sure that we are in tune with how the customers are buying their trailers today. So if one of our customers is buying all of their trailers from Great Dane, then we work with Great Dane to make sure that our technology gets integrated uh, together because ultimately these customers have to worry about things like after sales and warranty and all of that. And we want to not disrupt that as well. I'm curious, uh, the product roadmap and the business model itself, are you renting these? Are you selling them? Like, what does the transaction look like between you and a customer? Um, kind of all of the above. Uh, we've, you know, we're, this is, and that's a really weak answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, we have, we're working through right now the go to market plan uh, very specifically with folks, you know, with large trailer manufacturers, with, sales channel providers, and then also large operators that lease trailers to, um, uh, to these operations. So for example, you know, if you look at the, the riders and JB hunts of the world that don't really te technically operate their own trailers, they lease them out to other folks. Or if you look at, you know, the, the Pepsis and Walmarts of the world, they own their own stuff for the most part, and they're operating it themselves. And we have different um, uh, sales models for each of these types of operations, again, in, in an effort to minimize the disruption to how these folks work today. So, so on the, on this point, and, um, I'll, I'll be the, the curmudgeon here because it's just what I've heard talking to, to folks in the industry and stuff is that, you know, like, like this idea is a brilliant one, but that ultimately trailers are commodity that, and, and that really, there's not a lot of desire and, and again, you know, maybe, maybe this is where regulation, you know, the pressures that you mentioned from regulation come in that, that is overcoming this desire, but there's not like a lot of desire to move towards a world where, you know, trailers are another asset that you have to manage really closely because managing a, a big semi fleet or, or any semi fleet is, is itself a, a difficult thing. And, and electrification is adding all kinds of other challenges on top of it. So and that's that, happening like, right now, Ed, like okay. there's a tremendous, so there's a company called platform sciences. That's basically focused on taking all of these disparate systems, whether it's for telematics on your trailer or on the tractor uh, you know, if you think of, if you talk to the Great Danes and Hyundais and utilities of the world, they are adding intelligence and telematics to the trailers because, you know, if you like, for example, one of our customers that operates over 100,000 trailers told us very candidly that at any one moment in time, they don't know where up to 30 percent of their trailers are and they need to know. Right. The util utilization of assets is becoming a very big, important piece. And and there's two there's multiple profiles here. But one thing I'll say is that some of the customers, like Tesla, for example, they have a 10 or 15 to 1 trailer to tractor ratio on, in their logistics organization. And it's because they're using those trailers as mobile warehousing for just-in-time delivery. So if they get, you know, 20,000 harnesses made for the Model 3, and they don't obviously, if you've been to Fremont, you know they don't have room there. So then they rent a field in the middle of Stockton, and then they line up hundreds of trailers full of wire harnesses out in the middle of nowhere. That's Tesla and maybe a few other folks. Most of the other folks in the industry know exactly where their trailers are. And if they don't, they want to know. And they also want to know how much energy is being consumed by these trailers. 
what the load is, what the weight balance is. You know, our system actually the the suspension slider that's in these class eight trailers, that slider is meant to move back and forth depending on the load distribution inside the box. And it's a very manual process to get that right. We do that automatic because we can measure the load at the kingpin. We have traction motors at the at the uh, suspension module, and we can actually move the suspension module back and forth. And these are you know these are all features that get enabled with with this platform. And, and ultimately, our custom we're we're really tuned into what our customers initially need. But you know, Ed, there are definitely folks out there that don't care about trailers and they use them as throwaway pieces. Those are not our first customers. So if some, I mean, looking at your parking lot, um, first thing I want to know is when can I buy one for myself to transport a car to and from the track? I know that's in the roadmap, yeah, it's, but is there a price associated with that yet? Can you um, even? Not, so no, not yet. Uh, uh, I would say that we are probably a year away from being able to plan consumer scale trailers. Mainly because the interest and the and the opportunity in the Class Eight space is so big that we really need to address this and really kind of what we're finding is that we can end up being that relief valve for this industry that's really being pressured on, but uh, being put pressure on to, to decarbonize. And so, Alex, you and I will get the first race car trailers. Trust me, it's I think about it literally every day. Um, but uh, but I can't make any promises as to when or or how much and and believe me I <clears throat> I come from the racing world so it's it's one of those things that building a consumer scale trailer to to be able to use an F one fifty Lightning or a Rivian or even my F two fifty to take my race car to the trailer and save some gas it's it's top on my prior it's high on my priority list um, and we'll get there but I so can't. you said you're not an autonomy company but in theory yeah. if a team or uh, a, a cut trucking company had a number, a bunch of your trailers. Can could the trailer be dropped off at like the gate of a terminal, and could it be autonomously just take itself to the dock to be unloaded? Um, I can't say too much about that, uh, but I can say that that is a very that is a very likely scenario for the container chassis, and the container chassis is going to be our next product after the Class Eight trailer. Because if you think about container yard movement, uh, the, the tractors that are idling at the yards, we can actually gently push the tractors so they don't have to idle anymore until they get off the, uh, until they get off the yard property and then they can fire their engines back up. Um, we can pre, pre-cool and preheat reefer trailers and stuff like that. So um, I think the container chassis is, is kind of next for us and, and yeah. That's an interesting area where you're seeing a lot more effort in sort of the autonomous vehicle technology application, especially as the the promise of robo taxis kind of <laughs> yeah. faded a little bit. Um, I mean, not that it's completely faded, but you know what I mean. Um, are you talk? I mean, there's a number of startups out there that are trying to do like autonomous yard trucks yep. and things like that. Um, what you're describing though sounds a little bit different. Um, so how is it different than what some other startups are doing where it's like, you know, autonomous forklifts and autonomous yard trucks. This sounds when you, you use the term nudging. Yeah. So if you think about, um, these, like the container chassis, for example, um, container chassis are basically just, you know, big dumb piles of steel with that, that, 
play a very important role, but there's really no intelligence and, and no um, no kind of platform benefit there. And so if we add this propulsion uh, to the container chassis while the tractor is sitting idling in the yard, waiting on a queue to get out of the yard and get signed out and, and um, all of that stuff, we can actually, we, we're not uh, building this as a feature quite yet, but we definitely can build um build a scenario where you have an old diesel diesel tractor, you have one of our trailer container chassis, and we actually work with somebody like a, a, an Aurora or somebody else to kind of build a mild layer of autonomy on the trailer so that it can move itself uh, you know, forward and, and out of the, the yard. The nice thing is that because it's on a very geofenced and confined area and it's below, let's say, three miles an hour, the the problem of autonomy kind of becomes pretty straightforward. I think autonomy gets complicated when you're starting to look at higher speeds, unstructured environments, and then you 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 now you have to process and, and manage all of this insane amount of data at a very, very high rate. I think, you know, and I and I'm stepping a little out of my bounds, but autonomy below five miles an hour is relatively trivial. Uh, it's really where everybody's getting stuck is starting to think about highway speeds. And now you're going above 30 or 40 miles an hour and my sensor can't see out that far. So now I have to add another sensing layer. Now I have to build confidence for that new sensing layer. That's when things start to snowball out of control. But we have very high confidence that we can build we can build a platform in which many people can build autonomy stacks because we're not going to go above, let's say, three miles an hour. It, it makes the equation much more simple. And we're not going on public roads. I hate to go in the weeds, but I love going in the weeds. Uh, I want to talk about safety and minimal risk condition. I have a tractor. I'm using a range energy trailer. I'm at highway speeds. I'm enjoying the benefits of improved fuel economy. Let's say, let's say it's a diesel tractor. Um, there is, uh, we're relying on the Kingpin software to know to infer behaviors of the tractor to match speeds. We're all good. Something goes wrong on the trailer side. What, uh, for whatever reason, uh, there's, there's a failure of the battery connection to the, to the motors, whatever. What happens on the trailer side? And how do I, as the tractor driver, know what has happened other than feeling sudden Yep. Drag. So uh, the first part of the question is, is simple, and the second one gets a little bit uh, tricky. Um, so the essentially our failure mode in multiple layers is to default as a base tractor, or sorry, as a base trailer. So we just freewheel at that point, and you're carrying a little bit of extra load for the battery and the motor. And in the major case, where in a major failure case where everything kind of falls apart, um, we just decouple, and the trailer is just a trailer all over again. Now, in a mild failure, what we call fail gracefully, let's say, for example, uh, Alex, your guy forgot to plug the Tesla e-semi in last night. Nobody's getting their goods the next day. But if you forget to plug one of our trailers in and we call that, you, you know, it, and that's kind of a mild failure, we run out of energy in the battery pack because we're regening through the axle in the trailer and the trailer is so heavy, we can actually get 10 to 15 percent better fuel economy and build a mild through the road hybrid with no charging at all. And so there's different kind of definitions of failure here. I'll let you, you look a little bit confused. No, no. <laughs> it's the same. I'm, so if you take I'm a, speculating, if you take a plug in, if you take a plug in Prius and don't charge it, you get 
X gas mileage, which is a little bit better than if it was just a base gasoline engine. If you take a plug-in Prius and plug it in, you get really good gas mileage. And so essentially what we're doing is we're saying you can have a mild through the road hybrid with no charging because we're reclaiming braking energy back into the battery pack. Uh, and then if you charge, you actually get propulsion from that axle now, and it goes from 10 to 15% up to 40 or 50% better fuel economy. That's the first part of the question that you had. Before you go to the second, let yeah. me confess what I was really thinking when you saw my face. I was thinking <laughs> two things. Last night, I, I received um, some news digest, uh, and, and it was a startup that is uh, offering compact nuclear reactors, which fit uh, uh, into uh, the standard tractor, uh, to a standard cargo <laughs> unit. And I'm like, my God, what if that was on one of Ali's yeah. trailers connected to an electric vehicle? And I could go cannonball from New York to LA nonstop electrically the whole way. <laughs> um, yeah. and, We're, Alex, you and I are going to do the uh, um, cannonball run together in, the, in one of our trailers. And secondly, I was thinking to myself, I hate to give this to give the idea away, but I'm pretty confident you won't do this with anyone but me. I'm like, what if we just had prepositioned a bunch of these range energy trailers fully charged with the largest battery pack conveniently cross country, and then we just hitch ourselves these things and then using a couple of these trailers get across country faster than anyone else in a Yeah, I mean our, our trailer is developed as a as a platform to be a power a power station as well. So you can actually charge your vehicle or actually use the trailer as a charging gateway for your tractor. So we can totally Please, do that. My heart, my, I don't know if my, I mean, my heart can handle what I'm hearing. You put yeah, enough yeah. batteries in there and you could do the, the first nonstop cannibal, electric cannibal. Please, Ali, continue uh, with the second part of your answer before I, I pass out. This is, <laughs> I think we've uncovered something here, Alex, and we'll talk about it offline. But Go on. All right, so uh, the second part of the answer. Part, how does, so the human yeah. interface is, is something that we are we're still developing now. And uh, the way that we see it is that these drivers are being bombarded with information, different screens and, um, and new forms of data uh, um, and telemetry at, in the cabin. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to be as minimally evasive with that as possible. And so we have a common uh, communications bus that's on our vehicle controller that anybody can look at, whether it's, you know, the Daimlers and, and platform sciences of the world or our operators, where they can look at the state of charge or the energy um, being consumed or whatever from our system. But um, but more importantly, we're looking at this human interface uh, challenge as a very, very simple, like red light, green light, yellow light type of a thing. Um, and we will, just like on a reefer, you, when the driver looks at the mirror, they'll see a series of lights that'll tell them what it is. And that's all they need to know. If there's a fault in the system, they just look at the lights and we want to minimize the amount of work that the driver has to do to use this stuff. And we kind of want to um, make it as intuitive as, as possible to them. And if an operator says, no, we need to have state of charge on the screen and whatever, it's available. You, you provide the screen, you provide the HMI and, and we'll make sure that the data is there and clean. So I want to, I know we're, we're running out of time. Um, I, I kind of wanted to just ask. Here it comes. Well, no, no, about, about, you know, why, <laughs> why trucks, why trucking and, and it just. Oh, that's not what I thought uh, you were going to ask. Well, then no, I've got I one extra Ed. Listen, okay. listen. I thought you were going to ask for one fun, amazing story from the Tesla days. That's what I, I mean. I, I feel like. I will have a longer conversations about, uh, about the supercharging network and about the 
I think 1772 we, standard, and there's a whole like thing that I would love to unwrap with you there. Can we do um, a second episode with you just sure. about that? Okay. I would be happy. Sure. No, but I, I just wanted to. You've worked. I mean, look, you, you. I mean, your your CV is like dream material for any you know pornographic. Engineer. It's, it's you've been able to work on amazingly cool, exciting projects, mostly consumer facing. And we've had a number of guests actually now on the show that have kind of gone in this arc. So I'm curious, not just for you personally, but kind of maybe for as a whole space, as someone who's yeah. who's been around and knows a lot of people, talk to just explain this this sort of shift away from some of these consumer yeah. use cases where there's been a lot of challenges into trucks and, and things like that, which is now a very exciting space. I think for me, it really comes down to how can how can I use what I know in my experience to decarbonize transportation as quickly as possible. It's a lot easier for me to sell trailers a thousand at a time to folks like Walmart and Amazon than it is for me to sell, you know, electric RVs one at a time to, to rich dudes like Alex and, and myself. <laughs> um, <Not> but, rich. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, and so that that was the biggest draw was that, you know, I can actually we can develop this product and we can get it on the road and actually make a real improvement in, in this industry's decarbonization efforts and at the same time not be focused on this like big consumer future dream and like sell this kind of like weird like again this utopian future thing that I'm just like it's cool but what is it going to do today and I'm and I've spent so much time in my career looking so far into the future and what could be and what could be and getting stuck by reality, right? Getting slowed down or stopped by reality that I wanted to develop something that's really going to stick and it's going to, and it's going to help this industry that is frankly 50 or 60 years behind the curve um, and, and really help them get up to speed. And so, and, and ultimately if we do that right, then I can kind of spend my personal time and doing whatever the heck I want with Alex building crazy trailers. <laughs> Well, you know, since we're going to reserve the supercharged discussion for another episode, uh, Kirsten, do you have a question you'd like oh, to yes. ask our friend before we wrap up? No, no question. I was just going to say um, thanks for coming on the show and sure, thanks me. to our, yeah, and then thanks to our listeners for listening to another episode of the Atonicast. <laughs>